Dead men tell no tales. Fifty men loaded in man's chest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. The ship with black sails that's crewed by the damned. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Black Pearl Show, a Pirates of the Caribbean Minute podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artist from ScottArtist.com. And I'm Heather Artist from BlackPearlMinute.com. Boy, that was quite the introduction you had there for yourself. Really? Yeah, it was... Um, <laughs> and then it's, it's almost like retro style. <laughs> Some kind of old... School Hollywood thing going on there. I'm going for the old radio shows. You have like a a cigarette on one of those long like holders or something like that for the women. You think it's a cigarette. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for a minute. Token it up on Dead Man's (laughs) Chest. I mean, minute 31. I'm sorry. So remember those candy cigarettes? Oh, so now you're trying to change the subject? That's what it is. Okay. I think everybody else out there along with me rolled our eyes. I can barely see you from Hotbox in the studio. (laughs) In the previous minute, hell hath no fury like a woman who's been robbed of her wedding night. That's right. Elizabeth tells Cutler Beckett that it's not about robbing her of her big day, nor is it about slapping her in irons or virtually shanghaiing her betrothed, one William Turner, in case you forgot Miss Swan, but none other than her wedding night. And if that's frank enough for this 18th century aristocrat, she decides to take things to a whole new level in an effort to satisfy her craving. Let the calculations begin as she and Beckett work towards an understanding. Wasn't sure where you're going with that. Well, that's weird. Uh-huh. That we're talking, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. As they seal the deal yeah. for the letters of Mark, that is, Beckett dabbles in a bit of mind games. What's wrong? I was just doing a minute yeah, breakdown here. got it. Minute 31 begins with Beckett finishing his dot, dot, dot. Still want that compass. Consider that in your calculations. Elizabeth gives him the disgusted evil eye and escapes through the balcony. The minute ends with Pintel and Rigetti on a longboat. Rigetti reading, and I say that loosely by reading, <laughs> from a Bible and telling Pintel, we've got to take care of our immortal souls. Pintel reminds Rigetti that he can't read, to which he responds that it's the Bible, so you get credit for trying. Pretending to read the Bible's a lie. That's dot dot dot. And don't we try to maintain some semblance of order? But let's just we? say, well, kind of. Let's pretend. Yeah, that was, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm not so sure. It's nice to see a couple of old friends like Pintel and Rigetti. That it is. I was surprised to see them. It's like when we first see Gibbs, Marty, or Cotton. Just, just warms the heart knowing these pirates are still floating around the world. You know, that- helping others, volunteering, rescuing damsels in distress, or maybe not. They brought help with them. They did bring in help. In their long boat. Exactly. I was going to say little pooch. long boat, but... You don't know what you were going to say. Yeah, I was going to say little long boat, and then that doesn't I decided just to say long boat. There's a number of things that caught my attention in the minute before we get to the infamous Pintel and Rigetti, though, because there is a semblance of order here. 
We need to wrap up the Elizabeth and Cutler interaction. Don't you agree? Yes. You don't. You just want to jump to Pintel and Rigetti. Well, at the end of Elizabeth and... We've been talking about Beckett and Elizabeth for a couple minutes now. That's true. So it's old school now it's old or school. it's old... Old news. Not old news. There we go. I've been you having problems. I've been having problems with idioms and phrases lately. <laughs> They're getting all mixed up. Sad. It is sad. It is. I was listening to Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott discuss the compass, which we've discussed a bit last season, and it comes up again regarding Jack and how it works, what we've discussed already. But from an audience perspective, someone who's not been exposed to the expanded universe, the compass is still a bit of an enigma for them. Right, because Curse of the Black Pearl didn't explain details on it. Yeah. How does it really work? Does it only point to the cursed Ila de Muerta? That's one of the questions. So apparently, that's how Terry and Ted originally conceived of the compass. That's how it was written and actually how it was filmed. It's like, so let it be written, so let it be done. Not in this case, though. To hell with the Pharaoh. After the film goes through the song and dance of completing it, that fell to the proverbial cutting room floor idea. Look it, I got a phrase right. That's shocking. Yeah, no kidding it is. The final product removed all those references. Gave us the compass is kind of our desires. It set that portion up not the explanation of it only points to Ileta Muerta yeah not that they went into discussing it but it left it open for that to fall right into place because Terry and Ted were commenting on this particular scene with Beckett and Elizabeth saying how Elizabeth is under the wrong impression about the compass she still believes it only points to the island Aztec gold right Ileta Muerta that kind of stuff yeah and for some audience members I mean maybe a majority of them at the time that's possibly what they believed Yeah. This was a chance to throw out a new development that the compass may have other directions. Gives us the thing we most desire scenario. Doesn't necessarily point it out, but it set all that up with this movie then. Well, if if the compass only points to cursed Aztec gold, then the compass really wouldn't mean as much to Jack as it actually does. That's exactly it. Yeah. In Curse of the Black Pearl, it would mean that much to him. Right. But once he's found the island and knows where it's at, it really wouldn't matter anymore. Yeah. Which makes sense. The part about the audience being left behind on where the compass points, it's this idea. I mean, remember back to the beginning of this movie when we get Jack fresh from the prison and he's on the Black Pearl. His compass is going crazy. He can't get a proper heading. We're informed Elena Morta sank too by Gibbs. Yeah. Now it makes sense from a general like movie goer's experience. The compass doesn't work because the island sank. That could be a general leak. Oh, yeah. We were given all these bits of info without a map to connect the dots. That's if we travel back to 2006. If we didn't have all that information, we do know. Well, I mean, Beckett has a map, but we didn't know that then. Right. But it's interesting to try and see the movie from that perspective with a bunch of clues. It works now, knowing how things work with the expanded universe in the films. And it worked back then, I think, with an introduction on how this universe comes together. How all these elements work with the compass. It's like a woven rug. All these different strands interconnected to form a larger item. Rug. Tapestry. (laughs) (laughs) Coat of many colors. Or in the case of Governor Swan, coat of drably colors. But that's what I'm saying. That's what's interesting to see is how editing can make a plot difference. It changes the story around. Had they left in the bit about the compass in the first movie, 
only pointing to Isla de Muerta, then the sequel would have to explain the new ability of the compass or it would have to change around. Yeah. And it gives the writers more leeway when the audience can make an assumption, but not written in stone, that something's not just there already. Right. Then you don't have fandom complaining that something's not consistent with the universe. Yeah. Because that's the thing. The compass, for most of the audience people, we don't really know. And it's hard to remember back all that time to to that. But that would be most likely the case. Because a lot of this expanded universe stuff wasn't written yet. So they didn't even know. Right? Yep. So to have that bit of information, I mean, it's, it's just interesting how it all works out. And how that they can develop a story out of that and still use the compass. And how it means so much to Jack. All because... It fell to the cutting room floor, and they didn't even know that it did until they basically, you know, see the final product. Right. So that's what's interesting. Is it just me, or does Beckett enjoy toying with Elizabeth? She's Well, it's much like everybody else who's come in contact with Elizabeth. They all like toying with her. Yeah, why is that? She comes off as maybe too naive or something at first. She's not naive here, though. No. That's weird, because she's completely disgusted with him. She like woman handles the letters of Mark out of him. I was gonna say man handles, but she's a strong woman, so I had to say she woman is. handles. Pirate handles the letters of Mark from him. Yeah, she whips him right out of his hands. And he has the slightest smirk that's cresting on his face during that whole yeah. time. Almost like that. Yeah, you get a you take him, but I'll get him back. Yeah. You know. Let the games begin. Yeah, so to speak. like they almost it's almost like they still treat her like she's a a little kid. In ways, or, you know, Well, like, I think maybe they're treating her as a woman of the day. Well, yeah. And he's saying, but to, I'm coming But to for you. toy with her so much? I don't know. It's just, I mean, it's just because you are getting away with it this time. I'm still coming for the compass idea. But I really like the smirk. It's like with all those world conquerors or even businessmen. It's not dominating or building a company necessarily or the end product. It's the challenge of building it and the challenge of having a successful empire. Yeah creating it it's the game of it and that's what i see with beckett he wants the success of course but he really wants the challenge of it all well it's gonna be fun to chase her around i'm sure it is (laughs) (laughs) you know just like i mean look at the but it's not just her that he's chasing around i'm talking bigger picture here it's the whole challenge of it chasing the world domination around to get the final thing he doesn't want something just to be handed to him he wants to have that feeling of doing it himself or himself with his evil well, henchman he more, Mercer. He could be more proud of himself that way. Exactly. You don't want a Just sad have... Cutler Beckett. You want a proud of himself Cutler yeah, Beckett. Yeah, he doesn't want everything handed to him on a silver platter. Only dinner. Only Governor Swan does. And Elizabeth Swan at one point. Maybe. And I'm not referring to stuff. I just meant food. That they want the silver platter there because Governor was hoity-toity at some point. Norrington really likes the silver platter food. Yeah. I think that's probably a better example of who wants their food on a silver platter. Yeah. That's Curse of the Black Pearl, Norrington, I should say. Yeah. You better clarify that. I will clarify that. I don't have anything else to say about Beckett and Elizabeth, do you? No. So we can finally, as you wish, move on to... Okay, Pintel and Rigetti. It's about time. Two and a half days of talking about Elizabeth and Beckett. What? We had like a string of run-ons in Curse of the Black Pearl that just went on for days with some people. And we finally were just so excited to get on it. I can't remember <laughs> what it was now, but we were just so excited to get onto another character. Yeah, but this did. was exciting, though. This Their whole interaction was good. Oh, yeah, There's it a was lot really of good. good. I'm just done with it. Wow. Poor Elizabeth and Beckett. Heather really gravitates towards those 
minor characters, the secondary characters. They're not minor, Pintel and Rigetti. How dare I say that to yeah, them? Yeah, how dare you? I really like the Tinkerbell sun artifact we get with our introduction to them, though. It's the shot of the sun. We pan down to them on a boat. And for a few seconds, we get this artifact of the sun creating this ball of light, this 18th century Tinkerbell that zips down towards the boat before disappearing. That really is a great effect. Was that like a canned, did I push the button and you no, spoke? Did, or? Why do you say that Because sometimes time. it sounds like it's a canned response. No. That's why. It's like I push the it button is. and goes, that was really cool. Whatever. That sounds great. Good job, Scott. Way to go. That's what I'm saying. It just sounds like a sound effect. So now you know why I say it. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it as I roll my eyes. Oh, did I say that out loud? Yeah. I don't have anything actually to say about the sun artifact. But yeah, just thought it was cool. Just thought I'd point it out. Gore Verbinski is the inspiration for J.J. Abrams and his use of the lens flare. That's all I have to say. Are you sure? Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about it. Okay. I don't really have anything else to do about it. It just caught my eye. It's like this ball of light coming down right towards them. Which is actually, now that I think about it, on-air epiphanies happening. <laughs> it's really strange because divinely inspired, this like mm. ball of light comes down right to them when Pentel and Rigetti, Rigetti reading the Bible, Bible the good book, as well, they say. Trying to read it. Yeah, loosely reading it, as we said before. What is that? Their guardian angel? Maybe. And then it disappears before it gets there because it's like, oh no, it's just Patel and Rigetti. Hold <laughs> the boat. These aren't the right pirates. These aren't the pirates we were looking for. So the guardian angel goes away. It's interesting though. I just thought of that. They're reading the Bible, this heavenly light ball of an object comes down right towards them. And then denies them. And then denies them. Floats away. The elephant in the room appears Pintel and Rigetti actually were in the Fort Charles jail. And they made friends with the prison dog for an escape. So that's why the prison dog was missing. Exactly. They took him as a pet. That's exactly it. So they got out of there. I did some checking on this and found a treasure trove of details and information. Did you really? At first, no. When I thought, hey, if I just say something like that, it would sound cool. And then I just have nothing. But then I found more. So, I mean, when Pintel and Rigetti were held in the jail following this battle of Ilet Muerta, the official storyline goes, Pintel used a trick that allowed him to gain possession of both the keys and the dog. And then I say would say something like, here endeth our lesson. Something like that. But there's actually a whole storyline about this that I didn't know of. And I stumbled across it. About their escape. Because they do say something. I mean... Pintel and Rigetti are talking about this on the boat. They're talking about how they escaped, how Pintel used tricks. He tricked basically right. the dog, or he tricked, he used a trick to get what he needed. I can't remember the exact line right now. But the escape of Pintel and Rigetti, and I say that because it's the name of a comic book that was published by Disney Adventures in conjunction with Zizzle's Secrets of the Deep action figure line. Really? It was released free with comic two-pack Pintel and Rigetti in lookalike Jack Sparrow gear. That's the official name of this huh. action figure set. The two-pack here. And the comic was actually included in this action figure. It was in part of this set. And it was a blend of cartoon backdrops and action figures as the cast. So they actually used their own action figures in part of it. <laughs> That's I wonder if anybody's cool. seen that out there. I haven't seen it. Zizzle actually, I think, is gone. It's no longer functional. The company. Oh, okay. They were missing from the web, so I assume that they have gone defunct or were bought out. I didn't really check. But warning, the following will contain some spoilers for the ever-popular Zizzle comic, but sheds light on the escape. So I thought I'd bring it to our attention here. 
especially since there is a crazy amount of backstory in the expanded universe how this works. Let's just say this before going forward, that Pentel takes credit for the escape when perhaps it was maybe more about the dog. We all know the dog is smarter than these two anyways. <laughs> Yay for the dog. But Pentel was being clever. That, that's what he said, right? He yeah. said he was clever and got it. So we'll see if that still holds up. So here we go. Arrested after the Curse of the Black Pearl, these two now find themselves on Port Royal in the Fort Charles Jail. Curse of the Black Pearl, right after that. We've, we all know that. Maybe not the Fort Charles part, but we know that they were taken away. Yeah. According to the comic, having failed to escape six times in a single week, not surprising for these guys, <laughs> the pirates despair about ever leaving their cell. Outside, two guards feast on a leg of roast mutton, which has attracted the attention of our prison dog. The guards shoo him away, give him the get the hell out of here to the poor dog. It's like, come on, just throw the dog a bone here, guys. Right? <laughs> come on, guards. But in response to this, from the dog's perspective, cruelty of not giving him some food. Yeah. The dog drops the prison keys through the bars of Pentel and Rigetti's cell. Huh. Hell hath no fury like a dog not giving a meal. <laughs> he wanted a little mutton. Exactly. And... <laughs> Reminds me of the dogs with the mutton on Jerry Seinfeld. Tangent. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. It's wrapping the mutton up in this napkin. Yeah. The cloth napkin that the mother or the grandmother gave Elaine's sister. Okay. Yeah. Let's forget the Seinfeld reference now. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm going to try. Then, then they were stuffed in the pockets. Of yeah. The and the dogs are chasing them and all that kind of good stuff. Or chasing Elaine. her, Elaine, because she then borrowed Jerry's. See, I said we were forgetting it, not having to go through the whole thing. <laughs> The pirates, back to Pentel and Rigetti, leave their cell and tiptoe past the eating guards because they now have the keys. However, Rigetti accidentally treads on Pentel's foot and the ensuing commotion alerts the guards. The pirates flee with Rigetti wondering if the prison dog actually helped them escape or to simply give him a chance to steal a leg of mutton. <laughs> Which again comes back to the dog maybe smarter than Pentel and Rigetti. Oh, He's like, hey, I'm going to use these two goofballs to get me some mutton because yeah. those guards were being mean. Pentel reminds Rigetti of his plan, which is to get across the battlements and commandeer a boat at the docks. However, in their haste, the pirates end up back in the guard room where the prison dog is waiting with a leg of mutton in its mouth. <laughs> so I guess we answered the question about the mutton. Dog is smarter. Yada, yada, yada. Seinfeld reference. You had to, you, you did it. You brought it back, so I had to do another Seinfeld reference. Comic book style humor happens. Pirates of the... Caribbean crazy escape happens with runaway carts and boom, we find Pentel and Rigetti in a longboat at the dock. Then these two escape out into the open water and the prison dog is on board. Huh. Unfortunately for Rigetti, the dog takes a bite from the leg of mutton, leaving them without any food. Oops. End of story. Now we pick up here, dead man's chest, them out floating in the water with the dog. There you go. And the All mutton based is gone. The mutton's gone, there's no food, and this story all came from an action figure that they were selling, and they included a comic about their escape. Now that is a little bit bizarre. That's pretty funny. Isn't it? Yeah. Like Disney, like, oh, we should give them a story, and boom, all of a sudden they have a story now. When did this action figure, figure come out? Ooh, two, that's a good question. 2006, 2007, somewhere in that neighborhood. Hmm. It was with the whole Cutler Beckett line, too, so he was all part of that, and then I believe the company's no longer around. I did do a very, very quick search just to see if I could find this comic book. Yeah. Because at one time, Zizzle had posted the entire comic book on their website. But because there's no website or I couldn't find it, I couldn't find the comic. But it did take me to like some eBay or Amazon people selling this Pentel Rigetti thing. And the figures were 
this unopened mint on card kind of deal for like 80 bucks now. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Wow. So Pintel and Rigetti are moving on up in the world. Moving on up. Thank you. As we were mentioning before, Rigetti is a bit worried about his now mortal soul. Yeah. What do you think about him reading the Bible upside down? Here's my big question for you. Is this too over the top? No, I don't think so. Because these guys are just goofballs anyway. You know, and that just kind of puts the icing on the cake. But even an illiterate pirate like Rigetti would know when he's looking at text upside down. Is this a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the Bible gag? Thumbs up. You're giving the Bible a thumbs up? Yeah. On the gag? Yeah. I don't know. I I kind of go both ways. I didn't mind. And then I, as the more times I watched the minute, I started going, why is he doing that? But again, they are goofballs. They're goofballs. It's the comic relief to a dark movie. I'm okay with it, but like I said, the more times I watched it in a row, but when you're watching the minute like 30 times, okay, maybe it wasn't that many times. When you, when you watch it many times in a row, you start to go, is that really, should it have been upside down? That was my only question. But maybe it wasn't like he was so much trying to read it as to try to show Pintel that he was, this is the way he is. He's reading this, you know, well, so or... You know, just trying to... So you're saying he's faking Rigetti out. point. Yeah. So he's trying to fake Rigetti out. I don't know. To Maybe that's say, why that ball of light angel came down. It's like, oh my God. Uh, he's looking at the Bible upside down. How can well, I help it kind of it kind of helps him make his point. If he's got that Bible, no matter which way it was facing. Help him make his point about them being no longer um, immortal. And that they have to take care of their immortal souls. You know, so the Bible kind of helps him make that point to Pintel. Even though Pintel's like, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I see that and I can see where the humor was. And it, it was just like a two second thing. It's not very long that he's looking at it upside down. The whole point is, is that he can't read. Yeah. Did we need that clue that he can't read? Could have... Reg- or could have Pintel just have said, what are you doing? You can't even read that. Why are you even trying? As he's zooming it in. But did it have to be upside down was my only point. I don't know. It's kind of a gag that's used in a lot of... It is. It's a like a movie trope. Yeah. And somebody can't, can't read they're upside down. Even little kids do it in shows and stuff. I'll go down. with it. I don't know if I'm happy about it, but I'll go with it. It's, it's not like it bothers me a lot. Like you said, it's not very long for one thing. I don't know. It just caught me. And watching the movie normally, how many people are going to actually catch that? A lot. Because they zoomed in on it. Oh. Maybe. I'm not sure if it's an authentic 18th century Bible, though. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> something just doesn't feel right to me. It feels more modern. thought maybe the pages were a little too modern or something. I don't know. But it didn't quite look like that really thin Bible paper, though. No. Scrita paper. India paper. Number of names and different variations from what I found. Then again, not sure they want to take a real antique Bible out there on the water. (laughs) Probably not. Maybe it gives them bad juju. And they probably didn't want that. It seemed like the Bible was actually in too good a shape to be with these two. Well, that's what... No, well, they obviously took it. From what I read in the Expanded Universe stuff, they took the Bible. He took it from somewhere. It wasn't his Bible. So that was okay to take the Bible? Yeah, so he did But he can't commandeer a ship. Yeah. So he stole the Bible from somewhere. But that's the thing. And I don't know if that's that's a good point. I don't know if it's it looks too clean. Maybe that's why I just yeah. get the sense that it's more modern. But then again, my perception of 18th century Bibles and antique manuscripts and things that I've seen, they just look worn. Hey, because they're 
two, 300 years old. Okay, I get it. And maybe I'm getting prejudice on that because I expect a Bible to look like that from that time period, which perhaps if this one was made in the 18th century, it would look brand new. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Found myself wandering the historical annals of 18th century Bibles because of this. I know everybody just got, oh my God. Specifically Bible paper though. So it's a bit different. Okay. Bible paper from the time period. Seems quite a few from the era were printed on laid paper. Laid paper is a type of paper having a rib texture imparted by the manufacturing process. Is everybody just at the edge of their seat with this information? Walk the plank. Yes. In the pre-mechanical period of European papermaking, and this was from the 12th century into the 19th century, laid paper was a predominant kind of paper produced. Therefore, now everybody is up to speed on paper. <laughs> They're all excited about that now. It's like we're at a lecture. <laughs> yeah. Goes back to my classes in session. I brought this to you because it mixes well with the pencil information I brought yeah. a while back. People are going. But just, just the way you said the end of it. Now everybody's up to date on paper. It's like, how else do you make it exciting? I don't know. That was about as all I could muster with that. But let's be honest. I, I mean, there's probably more expensive Bibles out there at the time too, and maybe they had better paper because this, you know, modern, real thin stuff. It was like in the 1920s. But then there was this India paper that came around in the 1700s, which I think loosely fits our Pirates of the Caribbean universe. Who's up for more paper? The, the... <laughs> it's like I have so much notes on Bible paper and I'm thinking, why do I even want to go over all this? I mean, I don't want to bore everybody. Arr, grog. But I really did deep dive. This is my issue. A freaking Bible paper topic, which led me to research, which appears in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Involving scientists and scholars from France, Belgium, Denmark, Ireland, and the U.S. and the U.K. They analyzed 72 pocket Bibles originating in, you know, these countries, France, England, Italy. Oh, pocket Bibles are small ones, The small right? ones, yeah. Okay. Because I'm talking paper Because this is a full out. This is a big Bible. And this is from the 13th century. That's how I ended up going down. But they were actually, because apparently in this old pocket Bible world... And not really the pocket Bible, but it's more the thin paper that I was talking about that, yeah. like we have. But in the 13th century, they didn't have thin paper and they weren't really using paper at all. They were using vellum okay, for printing or for not printing in the 13th century, but creating manuscripts. And so there was this idea that the skin of fetal calves were used to produce the vellum because it was so thin in these pocket book Bibles. That was the theory. Seriously? Others discounted that theory, arguing that it would not have been possible to sustain livestock herds if so much vellum was produced from fetal skins. Because they were making a lot of books. They were handwriting these things. Jeez. Older scholarship even argued that unexpected alternatives such as rabbit and squirrel, while some medieval sources suggest that hides must have been split by hand through a use of a lost technology that we don't even know about today. Huh. The long story short... And seriously, you got interested. So I'm talking paper, you're bored, well, you're twiddling, you're and then all of a sudden, there. boom, I dropped this scientific ball on you. And but now you're, you're like, well, that's really in there interesting. Using animals as paper. That's what vellum is. We have some examples of that. Some of that old, those old manuscripts are made from that. They're hand, oh, those handwritten helpful. manuscripts. Yeah, that's what it is. So long story short here, because we're not going to bore everybody. Research on these old Bible manuscripts suggests that ultra fine vellum does not necessarily derive from the use of a newborn animals with ultra thin skin so there you go are you happy about that yeah 
but could equally reflect a production process that allowed the skins of maturing animals of several species to be rendered into vellum of equal quality and fineness. So nothing says saving Rigetti's soul than reading Bible verses from animal skins. There you go. Oh, before I got sidetracked with Bible paper, it's always a good topic for a pirate show, by the way, Bible paper. <laughs> He's reading the first chapter of First Thessalonians or perhaps the last chapter of Colossians. I don't really know. Because it's open and I see both. I don't know what he's trying to decipher. If he's really trying to decipher anything at all. Divide providence. Well, that's true. Significance is not really sure. I don't know why they specifically opened up to those particular pages of that. Those verses, if you will. Yeah. Those books of the Bible. I didn't do a bunch of Bible reading for the show. That'll surprise you. Because I was really stuck on. I got really into the Bible paper making process of vellum. And researching it. And then I realized I have way too much stuff and nobody wants to hear me talk about <laughs> vellum made in the 13th century and later. Tune in to our bonus yeah. content. Scott talks about vellum for two hours. So Tuesdays, don't forget, we have At the Table with the Donner Party. <laughs> and Thursdays, it's antique paper making. <laughs> Gotta love those animals. That's how the whole thing goes. So, Yeah. I don't really know if there was a thing. And like I said, I didn't do much Bible reading for the show. I did do some skimming for these ones. So I don't know if that counts. Or does that fall on Pentel's Bible sacrilegious scale? Maybe that is. <laughs> I was going to say, did you find anything about it being a lie to try to read the Bible? No. But what I did find one line that I want to point out, because of the terrible beastie subject matter we may encounter in this film, here's the line. But wrath has come upon them at last. That's the last line he would be reading from that potentially on that page. I mean, sure, the context is all wrong. But hey, it's a pirate show. <laughs> and it does say the wrath has come for Pintel and Rigetti, maybe Jack Sparrow. Maybe all of our characters are facing some kind of wrath in this movie. Or Seems some, like they are so far. Some random fishermen. Random fishermen. They really got the wrath. And I thought, you know what? Wrath is such a good thing to have coming for you. Why? Because it's always good to end on the apocalypse. And if not the apocalypse, because you don't have any apocalypse, the wrath of any deity or maritime mythos, I think will do for me. So that's all I got. I'm going to end of on... Of course it is. I'm going to end on the wrath. <laughs> what about the, the wrath, wrath of, of Khan? A, the wrath, nice one. The oh, wrath of Khan. Yes. Always a good way to end. <laughs> Jack! Because that's what I picture Davy Jones. I wonder if that's going to be a good, interesting connection, tie-in. We're going to have to now tie Pirates of the Caribbean to Wrath of Khan, specifically Jack Sparrow, a.k.a. Captain Kirk, Davy Jones, Khan. Hmm. Something to think about. But yeah, what do you think? Uh, wrap it up and then I can get back to reading more about paper making in the 13th through 18th centuries. Yeah, you better if you got Thursday's show full of paper making. I know, I got to really get on the topic and I got to make some new paper. Got to carve up some skins and make some hides and tan them and then create vellum and all that kind of stuff. That's so. not good. We'll be back on Friday with Minute 32 of Dead Man's Chest. Don't forget, Tuesdays, Table with the Donner Party. Always a delicious show. And... Thursdays, <laughs> antique paper making. Ah, you got to love those animals. That's on Thursday. Until then, scallywags, let's keep the horns swoggling and the excitement down for paper making to a minimum. There we go. Let's just keep that to a minimum. Okay.
You've been listening to The Black Pearl Show, and we appreciate it, scallywags. Heather, I know you're still on pirate time and kicking back with the booze, but you may have noticed... Actually, who am I kidding? The only thing you've noticed lately is the inside of the Faithful Bride Tavern. Anyways, our procrastination has paid off yet again and Season 2 is here and we are willfully unprepared. Maybe we can distract people with a Jack Sparrow wave of the hands and send people across that thing called the internet. Check us out on Facebook.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, Twitter.com slash Black Pearl Men, Instagram.com slash Black Pearl Show, SoundCloud.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean, that's for best of clips, and by all means give us a plug and review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it, mateys. Oh, and let's not forget the Facebook Cursed Crew listeners group for post-episode discussions. That's actually a lot to remember, especially if you're in a foggy haze like Heather. Just go to blackpearlshow.com and everything is there at the click of a button. Perhaps I should have just said that from the beginning. This is a Shoutreach Media Production. Pirates don't need no stinking disclaimers, but just for fun. I think all you dirty, filthy bilge rats know that Disney and Bruckheimer Films have no affiliation with us at all, and we have none with those blooming cockroaches. We talk about Pirates of the Caribbean, which is their property, and all that other fun stuff. But I think it's obvious what's ours and what's theirs. There's no need to blur the lines or stir up a bloody rum-filled sweat. As for the music... That's with permission or licensed under Creative Commons. So let's give a shout out to Ross Bugden, Six Nail Coffin, and Tommy Wynn. The rest? Well, that's just me. Oh, and maybe Heather.